Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Woman. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Today, later on the show, we are super excited to bring you our interview with the one and only Shannon Bream, Fox News host and author of the new book, Finding the Bright Side, The Art of Chasing What Matters. We asked Shannon about her time at Fox News, including during the turbulent times of the Roger Ailes sexual harassment scandal. We asked her about her decision not to have children. And of course, we asked whether or not she identifies as a feminist. Today, we're also joined by our fabulous colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Mary Claire Anselm. She's a education policy expert. Hey, thanks for having me. She's going to break down exactly what Democratic legislators mean when they say cancel student loan debt and what this proposed $1.5 trillion bailout would really do. Also, we're going to discuss author E. Jean Carroll's rape allegations against the president and the media's eagerness to cover it, women who are serial dating just for a free dinner, and finally, we'll crown an extra special Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or as we call them, problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman yourself or you support strong, right-minded women, please consider supporting the show and help us reach a larger audience by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes and encouraging your friends to listen and subscribe. Make a full and complete education a human right in America to which all of our people are entitled. That was a clip from a press conference hosted by Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to advocate for legislation to wipe out every dollar of student loan debt in the United States. Mary Claire, what would this trillion-dollar bill actually do? Yeah, so this is a wildly expensive bill, obviously. I mean, there's $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. And uh, contrary to Senator Warren's plan that she released a couple months ago, that would only uh, forgive uh, up to $50,000 of student loan debt and there are certain income caps. So anyone making over $250,000 a year wouldn't qualify for loan forgiveness. Senator Sanders' plan would forgive every single dollar of student loans that are out there in addition to making uh, two and four-year public colleges tuition-free. And so this is a wildly expensive program. The two bills, the Warren and the Sanders bill, have a bit of a different uh, structure in terms of how they're going to planning to pay for it. Senator Sanders' proposal is particularly troubling. He's saying this is going to be a tax on Wall Street, and so a tax on Wall Street trading, things like that. One, that it will increase market volatility. Uh, we don't want to be, be taxing Wall Street. It won't raise as much, generate as much revenue. But even more so than that, uh, he's claiming that this is going to be a tax on, you know, the quote-unquote 1% to benefit the middle class. Well, we know that that's not true because we know that there are no income limits on who can qualify for loan forgiveness. So you can have millionaires, billionaires qualifying for loan forgiveness under this program, and it will end up hurting the middle class because of these taxes, because of the effect that it'll have on the economy. And this will do nothing to drive down the root cause of why tuition has gotten so high, which is federal subsidies. And so if we actually want students to be able to afford to go to college without burdening themselves with student loan debt, we should be going in the opposite direction and getting the federal government out. I want to ask more about the solution to this, because on one hand, these proposals are so over the top, ridiculously expensive, that it's tempting to laugh at these types of proposals, laugh at the idea of having the two thirds of American taxpayers who don't attend four year college and get a degree subsidize the one third of Americans who do have the privilege of attending college. But that said, we do know of those who attend college. They 
are often saddled with a lot of student debt that is difficult to pay off. And a huge part of this is because colleges have been able to increase the cost of tuition so rapidly and dramatically. So what is your advice and proposed solution to get these graduates and future students out of debt. Part of the reason I find these proposals so troubling for free college is because it shows a shocking lack of insight as to how we got here. And I think you're exactly right. The more money the federal government has given out in student loans, right now the government controls uh, almost 90% of all student loans, the more colleges know they can raise their tuition year after year because they know that students aren't being price sensitive and that, the, and that Washington will come in and provide those loans to students. And so I, I don't doubt that that many Americans are really suffering under student loan debt, and we should be talking about this. However, wiping away student loan debt, as unfair as it is that students are taking on as much debt as they are due to federal policies, it's more unfair to burden, like you said, the two-thirds of American taxpayers who do not have a four-year college degree, presumably don't make as much money if we're so confident that college is such a great investment. Presumably that two, those two-thirds of people don't make as much money as that one-third. And so it's completely regressive. It's the exactly opposite of a lot of the stuff that Senator Sanders says that he wants like equality and 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 you know fairness and things like that this is probably the most unfair the way that we can be addressing this problem we should be proposing solutions that drive down the actual cost of college this will in fact make college more expensive it just changes who pays for it so as crazy as this bill is the craziest news to come out of the day were some of aoc's quotes uh and here is my favorite from the day in a restaurant and it was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. So that should tell you everything about the state of this of this uh, of of our economy and the state of quality of life for working people because in order for me to get it So not even easier to become the youngest woman elected to Congress in US history but literally easier <laughs> what I think is really funny about this, I looked on OpenSecrets.org. AOC raised over $2 million to become a congresswoman. So she can't pay off her ten, maybe $100,000 worth of debt, but she can find people to give her $2 million. It's, it's an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. I mean, just because something was done faster, I mean, she will eventually pay off her student loan debt or maybe not. You know, well, if, she's making $174,000 now as a member of Congress. But she needs a raise. Exactly. <laughs> so I think she can pay it off now. Exactly. She's far better off than a lot of people out there who are struggling to pay off their student loans. So if I were someone who, you know, I would just find this really troubling that, that she said that it, it's it's quite elitist, to be honest. Well, I want to play one more clip from AOC at this press conference because, you know, Lauren, I think this one tops yours. <laughs> I think so much about this moment when I was in college and uh, I was mentoring this girl, that this young woman, her name was Andrea. She was about three or four years younger than me, but I was about 19 years old and she was in high school. And she had gotten into all of these prestigious universities, but she was given no uh, student loan assistance, no real, she was given no um, scholarships. All of her student aid was presented to her in the form of loans. And she came from a solid middle-class family. She was not exceedingly wealthy. And, uh, and so she really, she got into her dream college, but her dream college offered her no scholarships, just loans. And she truly felt at 16, 17 years old 
She felt that the decision of college was so important that she felt that she needed to consider taking on $250,000 worth of debt to go to college. So what I don't understand about this is, first off, since when are dreams easy or cheap to achieve isn't the point of a dream that it is far off, it is difficult. And second off, why should I, as an American taxpayer, be forced to pay for this girl's dream and not the dreams of myself or my families. It's this crazy rhetoric that that everything you want should be entitled to you. And and it's important to point out the dream college that's being discussed here probably wouldn't even be covered under this plan. I mean, we're talking about public universities that would be tuition free. People can't just suddenly, you know, go to Harvard, you know, without paying nowadays. So a lot of these elite schools will still have their tuitions and, you know, it might create a, a definitely a two-tiered system. And so I find it the, the whole rhetoric behind if you have to pay for something, then that's somehow a punishment. Really troubling. I mean, that's not what America is about. You shouldn't have your dreams handed to you. But I do agree that college is way too expensive. That doesn't mean that it's there should be no monetary value on it. I think that you should definitely have to pay for something. And if she was getting into these, quote unquote, prestigious schools, maybe aim a little lower and try to get that scholarship. My dream out of high school was to go to school in the big city. And I toured schools in New York City and Chicago and guess what? I decided to go to UCF. It's a school in Orlando. I'm from Florida. I got in-state tuition. I took out very minimal student loans. I was able to pay them off in six or seven years. And guess what? After three years at UCF, I moved to the big city. So it was just, yeah. I had to delay my dreams. We, we want to be rewarding people who make smart financial decisions like that. And the problem with loan forgiveness is that we're forgiving people's loans who went to the cheaper school, who you know maybe lived in a cheaper apartment so that they could make their monthly loan payments, things like that, made smart financial decisions because they took that loan from the American taxpayer very seriously. We're forgiving that loan the same as someone who went to the most expensive school that they got into and overextended themselves and took out every single dollar that they possibly could in loans and has been defaulting since the day they graduated. We're treating those two people equally by saying we're going to wipe away all of your loans. And I think that sends the wrong message. I think it sends the message that people who are being financially responsible aren't rewarded for that. Right. Well, unfortunately, the cost of college is highly problematic. I think a piece of this solution is having more honest conversations about high school students regarding what student loans mean Mm -hmm. and how long they will have to work to pay that off, what that will cost. And also as a graduate of a school that I've seen has raised its tuition year after year, I decided I'm going to stop donating to them because as a graduate, if I keep giving them money, I'm just enabling them to keep raising tuition. I mean, not to mention that (laughs) there's other problems on college campuses uh, regarding the ideology that they're teaching college students. But, you know, I think that that's one small thing, tiny thing that I can do as a graduate is not encourage this behavior by these private and public institutions. With that, we're going to take a quick break, but we still have a lot to get to today on Problematic Women. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. Last week, author and advice columnist E. Jean Carroll came forward with an allegation that President Trump sexually assaulted her in a dressing room over 20 years ago. President Trump has denied the allegations and said that this is just a publicity stunt for her new book, What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. To discuss the allegations, Carol sat down with CNN's Anderson Cooper, and it was interesting to say the least. 
You don't feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished, which the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not this was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, what, it just, you know. But I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not. I think most people rape. think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're just going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. <laughs> that is so cringeworthy. It's so awkward. If you if you watch the clip, you can just tell on Anderson Cooper's face that he is just ready to finish this segment, and that's why he rushes to the commercial. Well, as a journalist, I think it was very cowardly to rush to a commercial break right there because there are some serious follow-ups that should be asked after a remark suggesting that rape is sexy by somebody who claims that she was raped by the president of the United States. And she didn't say, you know, there are some people that think this and there's a problem. We should address that. She said people think rape is sexy. It's it's just a very strange thing to say. And I think if I were Anderson Cooper, I would definitely want to jump to commercial right away. <laughs> yeah, I guess I maybe shouldn't blame him. <laughs> I don't know. Well, when we're seeing this more and more that decades after the fact, women are coming out and accusing mostly prominent conservatives of sexual assault. And we should take these women seriously when they do claim these. But a lot of times the evidence doesn't come through. You know, they they claim they have witnesses and they're not willing to state their name on the record. Kelsey and Mary Claire, how do we balance taking them seriously with making sure that the person accused has due process? So I believe her story was first reported by the New Yorker in light of this new book that she is selling where she covers it in more detail. And when I first heard about it, I thought every woman has a right to be heard. Every woman has a right to tell her story. Not every woman has a right to get their story into a major media publication. Um, but if, if your story has corroborating evidence, facts to back it up, and it is a high-profile case, then certainly I believe we all should listen to it, at least listen to it. That's a first step. But the problem with this story is that the New Yorker claimed they talked to two women, I believe, that she told at the time. And strangely, the New Yorker did not publish their names. We know nothing about the corroborating witnesses. And so we just kind of have to take their word for it. I think that was problematic early on. Then we watch her interviews and, you know, I'm going to let the audience our listeners decide what they think of that, but certainly they raise some red flags. And another thing I thought was really curious was why both Carol and, and journalists were referring to this as sexual assault. They weren't referring to it very often as rape. And what she's alleging, if you read it, is rape. And I find that insulting to women who or men who were actually raped. If people were raped, we should not be watering down the language that we're using. That is an inherently violent, not sexy act, <laughs> despite what she seems to think of it. So I think the most important takeaway for our listeners about this story is, is for any young girls, I, I pray this never happens, but if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are assaulted, harassed, or even raped, you have to document it. Even if you don't want to go through the long, difficult process of 
fully reporting it to the police at the time. If you ever change your mind in your in the future and you want to come forward with your story, you need strong corroborating evidence. You need witnesses and we need to encourage women to document it, take evidence at the time, even if you do decide to sit on it for some time. I agree, Kelsey, 100 percent. And there's so many details coming out with this story. So we'll us at Problematic Women will keep close tabs on it and keep you updated. So for a more lighthearted story, foodie calls are now a thing. Foodie call, like booty call, but for food. Women are now setting up dates for the purpose of just getting a free meal rather than romantic interests. And it's a real thing, I swear. So, Kelsey and Mary Claire, have you guys ever heard of this term before? I had never before this this recent article came out. I, I didn't even understand what they were talking about. I mean, this is why we can't have nice things. Like, women who do stuff like this. <laughs> Quoting Taylor Swift. Yes, I always quote Taylor Swift. She, I mean, if I were a single woman right now out there in the dating scene, I would be so frustrated that I'm trying to compete with these women who are, like, discouraging men from, from actually, you know, trying to meet a nice girl and go out on dates because they're just trying to get a free meal. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think it's that hard to get a nice meal these days, but... Um, well, first off, I have to credit Lauren for managing that transition from a story about a rape allegation to a foodie call. We didn't really think that one through when we were planning out the show. <laughs> okay, so I guess I wasn't as surprised by the idea of a booty call but for food uh, as someone you know who spent some time living in New York. I always, you know... My friends would always joke the silver lining of going on a bad date is that you get a good meal out of it. And, you know, restaurants in these big cities are expensive. That said, I think the foodie call takes it to a whole new level where women are actually, it appears, using men solely for the purpose of food. (laughs) I would approach it as, again, the silver lining of a bad date, not your sole purpose. You're at least intending to get to know this person over food, not just going on a date for the food. So I can attest, Kelsey has told me that before. (laughs) Sometimes when you listen to podcasts, you wonder if the two hosts are like actually friends. I can attest, Kelsey and I are actually friends. Before I go on dates after work, I'll, I'll tell her like, oh, I'm going out with this guy. And she will every time. Well, just think of it this way. Even if it's really bad, you'll get a free dinner. <laughs> but trust me, I've been on some dates that are bad enough that you wouldn't take. I would have just like left a twenty dollars bill on the table and left. I'll well, pay you not to talk to me anymore. Exactly. Well, are you more inclined to like offer to pay for the bill or split the tab if it's a bad date to kind of send the message that it was nice meeting you, but we're done here? Yeah, I, I think so. This is Lauren's. Proper dating etiquette. <laughs> so when you go on a date, the man should always ask. The woman should never ask. I agree. But then when you go sit down for dinner, you enjoy the conversation. When the bill comes, the woman should offer. Mm-hmm. The man should say, hey, that's kind, but I got it. Mm-hmm. If the woman offers two or three more times, let her split it because she probably <laughs> never wants to see you again. doesn't want to feel guilty about it. And then women, if you're kind of an independent woman, and I think this is a tip actually Kelsey told me, and you're really feeling the date. Offer to get one more drink with the guy and pay for that because you're showing like, hey, oh, that's smooth. Yeah, yeah, I'm independent. You know, I still want you to pay for dinner and and be chivalrous. But you know what? Like, I'm I'm showing a little interest in you. 
Right. And I've always felt bad for men because dating is so much more expensive for them versus women if they are the more traditional guys who step up and pay the tab. I know we probably talked about it on shows in the past where women think the feminist thing to do is to only split the tab. Um, But, you know, for us more traditional folks, dating can be very expensive for men particularly if they're taking women out to some of these nice restaurants. So um, I don't really have much respect for women who <laughs> who partake in these foodie calls. Um, I think that's completely taking advantage of men. But of course, no, no, it's just women. We're the only ones who are oppressed. Well, it, it, it's more common than you might think. According to the survey done by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology... Which about, we can't totally vouch for. Yeah. But... <laughs> The articles from Earth.com. But Earth. they did a legit but survey. survey they said 33% of the women they surveyed have admitted to making a foodie call. It's one in three women. That's a lot. And I I mean, wow. I've had friends who've admitted to this. Like, oh, I don't really want to go out on this date, but he's going to buy me dinner. So <laughs> It's so crazy. And I'm sure the feminists will say, well, men have, you know, for such a long time just gone on a date because they want, you know. Something out of the woman as a well. booty call, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> a booty call, and so it's time for feminists to to take back their space and do a foodie call. But at the end of the day, no one's winning here. Everyone's just taking advantage of each other. Whatever happens to just like going on a nice date? I don't know. Absolutely. Well, on that note, when we come back, we're going to play our interview with Fox News's Shannon Bream, talking about her new book, Finding the Bright Side. Stay tuned, and even later in the show, we're going to announce. Quite possibly my favorite problematic woman to ever exist in the history of the world. (laughs) Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage, that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on heritage.org today. We're back, joined by Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night, which you can find weekdays at 11 p.m. Shannon is also the network's chief legal correspondent, a regular host for Special Report and Fox News Sunday, and most importantly, the author of the new book, Finding the Bright Side, the Art of Chasing What Matters. Shannon, welcome to Problematic Women. We are so honored to have you. And I have to say, as an editor of the morning email called Bright, I love the name of your new book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kelsey. It's great to be with you. So I wanted to start off by getting the abbreviated version of how you got to be where you are. Um, it's a dream job for many young women. We have a lot of young uh listeners of this podcast. And I think uh, uh, you, you cover a lot of this in your book, but a lot of them are curious how you found your way in this career path. You know, it was pretty non-traditional, which I always like to share with people because I think sometimes people feel like, oh, no, if I don't try get the right major, I'm locked in forever. Or if I don't go to school right away, or if I make a different choice, and you know, I, I share my story to say, like, you don't have to go a traditional path to anything. I certainly didn't. So don't feel like um, you're making a wrong move if you have to commit to one of these things, like a major or a minor or anything else. Um, life will take you in all kinds of unexpected directions. And it certainly did with me. I was a business major, then went to law school, and I practiced a few years. 
Um, I never had lost this itch, though, for current events and for being sort of a news junkie and pursuing that kind of thing. So I, at almost 30 years old, um, became an intern at a local TV station in Tampa where I was practicing law. I'd do that during the day, and then any nights or weekends or overnights I could work, I would go intern at the station. And that's where I got my first job and and transitioned out of being a full-time lawyer into being a full-time um, I wasn't really a reporter there. I was sort of a producer who once in a while, if no one else was available, they'd let me go out and do some on-air stuff. And because of some people there who were really kind to kind of teach me on the job, that's where I got my start. But I also got fired from that first TV job for being, quote, the worst <laughs> person ever seen on television and was told I would never, ever make it in this business. So I share all that because I want people to know that whatever roadblock you hit, it may seem really devastating at the time, um, or if you take a different path than you had planned, it's okay. I mean, it, it all works out in the end if you keep pursuing um, what you're passionate about, what you think that you are made to do. And all you got to do is you'll hear no a lot, but just get to the one person who says, all right, I see this. I'm going to give you a chance. Or you make that opportunity for yourself, maybe as an entrepreneur or whatever your path is. Um, just don't be discouraged. Uh, it's great that you have a law degree, and this is something I get asked when I'm mentoring young women. Should I go to law school, especially those interested in a media career? Um, they look at women like you and uh, think there's there's something unique about having that law degree. Of course, this is a huge time and financial commitment. Um, so do you think that's worth it? You know what? I was unsure what I wanted to do coming out of college. Like, I think a lot of people, it feels a little overwhelming to think about, okay, I'm a grown-up now. I have to pay rent, figure out what to do with my life. And um, I'd really always thought about grad school. It was something my parents encouraged uh, me to do. My mom had her master's. And my dad, I jokingly say, but only half-jokingly said to me, like, you're going to law school or medical school, so pick one. He wanted me to have a great education and be able to make my own choices and have, you know, some financial stability on my own. Um, you know, whether I ended up getting married or not or whatever I wanted to pursue. So I was fascinated always with politics, and I could see how it intertwined with the law. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to law school. I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do with it, but I think there's a lot of value here in learning to see different arguments, how to research, how to write, how to speak. So I think it's a great investment if you um, are tenacious and willing to put up (laughs) with, you know, a couple of tough years. Um, because it sets you up for so many different things and you don't have to use it in a traditional way. I mean, I'm certainly not doing that. So I think it's a good investment if you're not going to put yourself into enormous debt over it. Um, you know, I, I think it's good use of your time. Your book is about finding the bright side through often difficult times. And one of those difficult times for you was um, not just figuratively figuratively dark, but literally dark. Um, you talk about dealing with a chronic eye illness, which I read about very briefly on social media when you shared something right before launching your new show. I had no idea how painful um, and how prolonged this issue was for you. Um, so can you share a bit about that to, uh, with our listeners and how faith played a role in getting you through that? Yeah, I mean, that was one of two probably the hardest um, things for me to write about in the book because, you know, we all go through trials and things, whether it's you know, losing someone, losing a job, getting a diagnosis like I did, where you're basically told there's no cure for this, when we all go through valleys. And so I thought it was important to share it, but it was hard to go back to it and sort of relive it. But I thought, you know, there's purpose in being vulnerable and kind of hoping to encourage other people who maybe when they pick this book up or someone shares it with them that they get, um, you know, encouragement from if they're in a dark space at the time. 
And I thought it was important to share that because it was a couple years of really excruciating chronic pain of not being able to get a diagnosis. I, you know, want to encourage people, even if you have a doctor who sort of brushes you off or tells you, um, you know, you're crazy, or as a doctor told me, you're too emotional. Um, yeah, I was living in chronic pain and exhaustion for a couple of years. So, yeah, I probably was a little bit emotional. But you have to keep advocating for yourself and don't give up. Doctors are fantastic, wonderful human beings who have dedicated a lot of their lives to education and to helping other people, but they don't have every single answer. And sometimes you just have to keep pushing. Um, for me, there were times when I got to such a dark place that I, I really wanted to give up. I remember thinking, if I just went to sleep and didn't wake up, like it would be such a relief. I just had gotten to such a tough place with this, you know, chronic pain and no hope because I couldn't find a diagnosis. And I prayed, you know, many times, God, please heal me from this. But if you're not going to, I finally prayed, please just get me to a good medical professional who can at least help me through this. And um, I ended up at the doctor I have now who's fantastic and was able to diagnose me very quickly and get me on a treatment plan. But he's also the doctor who had to tell me there's no cure for you. This is genetic. And so it's been a series of um, praying for strength, you know, that the Lord will get me through each um, next hurdle. And he really has. I mean, I, I talk about in the book that I'm not somebody who feels like I audibly hear the voice of God, but at my really lowest moment when I was praying just for help and for relief um, to make it one more day through this, feeling like he said to me, not I'm going to heal you or I'm going to take this away or answer the prayer the way you think, but I am going to walk with you through this. I'll be with you. And so that's been enough. Uh, and that and this wonderful doctor he sent me to have um, really given me my life back, and I'm really grateful. Well, that's incredible. There's a lot of reasons to read your book, but this section is particularly one of them. Um, as someone who watches you go on TV day after day, I just had no idea the physical and emotional pain that you have dealt with. And I look up to you all the more uh, for that. And I imagine everybody who is picking up this book feels the same way. Um, so okay. let's get to something a little more awkward about the book. So you you talked you talk about navigating these awkward and sometimes inappropriate conversations uh, with colleagues in the workplace. For you, it was former Fox News chairman and CEO Roger Ailes. Um, you know, I'm sure most people have heard about these allegations and, and what happened over at Fox News by now, so we don't need to rehash all that. But we wanted to ask, do you feel that women are disadvantaged in the workplace? And what is your advice for handling these uncomfortable and often very complex conversations? Yeah, it's very tricky. I think um, women and sometimes men, too. I used to be a sexual harassment lawyer. And so I was very well versed in what my rights were and that kind of thing. But I've seen cases where men are subjected to harassment as well. I think the numbers are certainly more with women in that case. Um, but listen, I think sometimes we have to make very delicate choices for a lot of women. Sometimes people will say, well, why don't you just quit your job and find a different one? And for a lot of women, that's just not reality. I mean, if they have a good job, they want to hold on to it. If they're the sole support for their family or a single mom or just a woman who's making it on her own, it is, as you say, complex is a good word. Um, I do talk about my relationship with Roger in the book, again, as part of just being transparent and, um, like most people, I mean, he had wonderful things about him, and he had negative things about him, like we all do. I saw him be incredibly generous. I saw him um, reach out to people who were in really tough spots um, and be very loyal and very helpful. And he was a TV genius. I mean, he was a programming genius. So, you know, there were many good sides to him, but I did have uncomfortable situations and conversations with him that 
I write about it in the book, um, to be honest, and to also share the fact that, um, you know, I had to draw a line in the sand for myself. And I think um, many women will have to make that decision in their workplace over time, um, finding themselves in these situations. But I think there's so much more sunlight on it now that, I mean, certainly at Fox, um, we've had an enormous push for people to know exactly how to go to HR, how to report things anonymously, how to use, um, you know, a, either a toll-free line or a person or, you know, multiple outlets. So in um, that way, it's brought about a lot of positive change. But I do think for women, sometimes um, you make the assessment, do I want to report this? Is it going to go straight back to this person? Can I trust HR? Those are questions that go through your mind in making an assessment about whether um, making this report is going to wind up being a negative thing for me, or can I extricate myself from the situation with a little bit of humor, um, you know, keep my my red line in the sand, uh, you know, that if somebody crosses it, that's a different situation. But if it's just navigating an uncomfortable meeting, um, trying to be savvy about doing that, hold on to your job, but also holding on to your respect. So I think it can be very complicated. I think that's a, a good way to describe it. Yes. And it's nice to be able to have these nuanced conversations to be straight with women and say there's not a clear uh, black and white solution to this. But the fact that we are bringing sunlight to it and and talking about it and changing some of the ways that HR, um, you know, functions in different companies and corporations and even Congress is a good thing. So um, we appreciate you being a part of that conversation. Yeah. And I think um, we've seen in the last probably four or five years, so many important conversations be launched on this that I think it's important to continue them. And I do think, um, you know, I worry and I think there's always a pendulum when when stories and issues push to the forefront that you don't want such an overcorrection. You know, I'll have a colleague or friend say to me, a male colleague, like, I love what you're wearing. Oh, is that okay if I say that? Or are you offended if I open the door or let you go first or those kinds of things? And I'm like, no, let's let's be careful that we don't um, make every single man in our life feel like they have to be on red alert 24-7. Um, I think that the pendulum will swing back a little bit, but it certainly opened up a lot of conversations we needed to have. Absolutely. So you also opened up about how, unlike a lot of women, you never felt the calling to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure so many women feel the same way, but we don't talk about that much. And it seems like there's not much of a quote-unquote, safe space for them to have that conversation. Um, why did you decide to share this publicly? And um, what can you say about your decision um, and how you came to terms with that? Yeah, I think it's one of the most common questions that I get. And it's something, even if you just meet somebody for the first time, you know, you start talking and trying to find some common ground and like, oh, do you have a family? Do you have kids? And I think it's just a natural question for people to ask. And whenever I say no, um, you know, I'm never sure what people think if they think, oh, they tried to have kids, had physical problems, or they hate kids and think kids are <laughs> terrible. I mean, so I never was really sure to where to take that conversation with people. And because I'm asked so much and have kind of fumbled around with an explanation, I thought, I'll put it in the book. You know, I will just give people an explanation about the fact that, you know, I have dear friends and relatives and, and people who've known since childhood. I can't wait to be a mom. That's my calling. I love babies. I can't wait. I, I want to build a family, and, and that's what I want to do. Um, I never had those feelings, and I kept thinking, well, they kick in at some point, maybe uh, once I get married, maybe once all my friends start having kids, um, you know, and there was a lot of pressure from my family at times, where are our grandkids, where are they, <laughs> you know, and I just had to, I thought I need to articulate for people that I think parenthood is probably the most demanding, the most rewarding job um, 
the role in life that you'll ever play. Every mom I know, whether they're working in the home or working outside the home, they're super women to me. I do not know how they do everything they do on limited sleep and with multiple demands on them. Um, and I just thought, you know what, if you're going to have children, you have to do it because, you know, you really have a yearning and a longing for that um, because it's going to require um, all of your emotion and investment and time if you really want to be there for your children in the best ways possible. And I thought, you know, if I'm doing it, if I'm having kids for any other reason or for any other people or because I feel pressure societally or from family or anything else, I don't think that's the right reason to do it. And I thought if I don't have this um, maternal urge that kicks in at some point, um, I feel like my career in a way has been sort of a baby for me. It's required uh, a lot of time and effort. It's a 24-7 job, but I love it and I'm passionate about it and driven about it. And I think that's how many of my sisters out there feel about motherhood. So I just wanted people to feel like, you know, there are different choices that we can respect each other with going different paths as women. And you don't have to choose any one path. I mean, you follow your own heart, your own, um, you know, plan, and it doesn't have to look like anybody else's. So because I don't meet a lot of women talking about it in that context, I thought I'd go ahead and share it. I'm sure many women appreciate your honesty. Uh, We sure do. Uh, wrapping up this interview, we cannot let you go um, without asking about your views on feminism and what female empowerment means to you. We ask almost every guest this. So we want to know, do you identify as a feminist or do you reject that label? And whether you reject it or embrace it, what is the best way to support and empower women in whatever life path they choose to take? I'm not a big label person, so I've never really said I am a feminist or I'm not, because I think for people, they have very different subjective um, understandings or their own interpretation of what that means. I would say, though, that I'm all about making sure that women um, have choices and that we respect that. And I I feel like a lot of my mom friends who are stay-at-home moms, they often feel like it's kind of, um, you know, they're they're pushed aside. And and when somebody says to them at a dinner or a party, oh, what do you do? I'm a full-time mom. The people just sort of tune out with them, and I'm like, gosh, to me, that is the most laudable, hardest job in the world, um, and something that we should respect women about if that's the choice they make. If they want to be in work full-time, if they want to try to manage those things together, we should be supportive of them. Um, I think if you're really going to be about women, um, that you should be cheering for your sisters, um, regardless of political party, religious background, class, anything else. I mean, I think that we should be supportive of each other and say, listen, if we're in this society, and I wouldn't want to live any place else in the world um, when it comes to the rights of women as far as, you know, voting and owning property and making your own choices. I don't think there's any place that can rival the U.S. And so um, I'm all about supporting women and whatever choice uh, they want to make for how they spend their lives. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm going to leave our listeners with a little teaser Uh because I don't have time to uh, get into it with you, but you have the cutest engagement story that I had never heard before. <laughs> so that is a reason why everybody needs to go out and pick up a copy of your new book, Finding the Bright Side, The Art of Chasing What Matters. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Kelsey. Thanks so much. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. So, Kelsey and Mary Claire, I don't know if I've ever been so excited to announce a Problematic Woman of the Week. We've had some really great ones. But, Kelsey, do you want to do the honors? I would love to. So, I am expecting a little baby Problematic Woman. This will be my first baby. 
I have no idea what I'm getting into. I am almost 21 weeks pregnant. I found out just two weeks ago that it's a little girl. She is most definitely problematic already. She made me very, very sick during the first trimester, the first 16 weeks. I have to give a shout out to my colleagues and managers here at the Daily Signal who were very understanding and worked with me through that. I did not realize how difficult pregnancy can be. Not every woman um, gets a lot of the morning sickness, which is really misleading because it's really 24 hours a day, all day, every day sickness. But I had it pretty bad. I don't think I had, I certainly didn't have the worst cases. I wasn't in in the hospital, but it was really hard. I was really tired all the time. Um, And, you know, my husband and I just wanted to keep it to ourselves for a little bit. So it was hard not being able to be open and, and sharing how awful I felt. And it's a really strange feeling being so sick. It drains you not just physically but mentally, but also being so excited at the same time and also knowing how blessed I was to uh, not have any fertility issues. There's so many women who would give anything to be able to conceive and to complain about the side effects felt wrong in some way. But that said, I, I did need to acknowledge that it was really hard. And I am so grateful for the tribe of women that I did tell early on because I had to I had to um, share with some colleagues at work just to get some help. And one of the most beautiful things I found of pregnancy is I've seen this whole new side to women that I didn't know existed about how supportive and understanding they can be through a difficult but also really exciting time. And there's been a couple kind of funny moments in the studio where we've been talking about, you know, being a woman in the workplace and, you know, we'd have to be like, oh, we're not parents. Wink, wink, <laughs> wink, wink, knowing that Kelsey was pregnant. So, Kelsey, though, how did you guys find out the gender of your baby girl? So this was a funny story. We had the uh, 20-week ultrasound. I think we did it right before around 19 weeks where you can uh, find out the sex of the baby. And um, it was an amazing experience. I just have to say I don't understand how... Anyone can proceed with an abortion after seeing this life on a sonogram. Um, And (laughs) so we're so excited to find out the sex. I was pretty convinced it was a girl because I was so sick. Um, But we get in there and the ultrasound technician tells, tells me, this is one of the worst positions I've ever seen a baby in. Uh, for this ultrasound. It was nothing about the health. It was just the way the baby was sitting. So I said, um, how is how's the baby positioned? And she said, she's sitting uh, Indian style, cross leg, breached, so head up, butt down. And, and I said, oh, so she's sitting like a little yogi, like her mother. <laughs> so she was also being problematic in the ultrasound. Finally, after I stretched and moved a little bit, it took about 20 minutes, uh, the baby moved around and we were finally able to find out indeed was a girl. Um, it was the cutest thing when when she moved around. I have a picture where she literally gave us a thumbs up. We thought it was so funny, like she was just messing with us. She was going to let us find out her gender. And then at the end of the ultrasound, uh, she put right as the technician was about to 
uh, wrap it up. She put her whole palm out like she was waving us goodbye. See you later. See you in a couple weeks. (laughs) You didn't use a cake. You didn't use an alligator to pop a balloon. (laughs) My favorite has been, it was an April Fool's prank, but this one company for their gender reveal did um, pink and blue mozzarella sticks that when you bite into it. So it's fake. But if anybody hears this, I would like to make this a real thing. Please. Pink uh, and blue mozzarella sticks. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, Kelsey, you're not the only one, uh, the only couple who has kind of gone away from these gender reveal parties or cakes that were really popular for the past five or ten years. Uh, according to a New York Times article titled, It's a Girl, It's a Boy, and for the gender reveal cake, it may be the end. <laughs> Support for these cute sayings is kind of going away because this gender topic has become just so kind of awkward because people are like, oh, this is just the gender that they're born with. We don't know what the gender that they'll become. (laughs) Yeah, it's now politically incorrect to do a gender reveal because you are assigning the baby's gender. Um, That is absolutely not the reason why we did not do a gender reveal. We honestly were just so excited. We a lot of a lot of couples these days will have that ultrasound and have the technician put the uh, the sex in an envelope and then, you know, they'll open it privately later, maybe just the couple or with close family or friends. And we honestly just couldn't wait. We were so excited to find out whether we were having a little baby girl or a little baby boy and finding that out and seeing again seeing the baby in the ultrasound it just makes it so real and uh you know you just realize how beautiful life is and how incredible creation is that i literally have a baby inside of me <laughs> baby little elizabeth lauren as i like to call her <laughs> yeah well, well finding we'll out the gender it's the first time you can actually really, really start picturing like okay this is going to become a person and you start mm-hmm. thinking okay what are they going to act like what are they going to dress like and yeah. it seems like such an exciting thing and so it's it's sad that people are sort of moving away from well let's not let's not really think about gender i mean they have to choose obviously yeah and i thought it was so funny that I was like, she is already so problematic. She's going to be a little (laughs) troublemaker, but hopefully for all the right reasons. And to wrap up the episode, I just want to talk about my favorite part of this New York Times article. The whole thing is kind of crazy. (laughs) But at the end, they quoted this baker from Portland named Julia Richardson. And they use slightly more graphic terms, but she's not a fan of the gender reveal cakes because of the reason of, you know, maybe the baby's transgender. But if a customer really, really wants one, she'll make one for it. But she won't call them like a boy cake or a girl cake. She uses the genitalia terms for each cake, which is <laughs> very kid friendly. Yeah. yeah. Who wants to hear that? Like, I don't want to hear the genitalia of my baby. I want to refer to my baby as the baby girl she is. <laughs> well, we're so happy to welcome baby girl bowler. Uh, and so what, what's the due date? November 8th. Uh, she's me- measuring big though, so could come early. But I'll share I'll share a bunch of updates along the way. This is this is new for me, and I've appreciated hearing other women be open throughout their pregnancies and and births. So I I hope to share a little bit of this magic. And so that's going to be it for this week's problematic women. I'd like to thank Kelsey and Mary Claire for joining us today. Can you let people know how to follow you on social media? Sure. My Twitter and Instagram handles are the same. It's at M-C-A-M-S-E-L-E-M. My Twitter and Instagrams are the same as well. They are at Kelsey Bowler. 
And my Twitter and Instagrams are the same. <laughs> and it's at Lauren E. Liz Evans. Well, join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Or even better, just tell your friends. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, associate producer Samantha Rank, and editors Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko.